Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. We're glad that you're here tonight. We've got a lot to cover. And as always, there's lots that we want to put up on the screen. This is different than Sunday. Uh, You know, we can't turn to all these passages, particularly on our topic tonight. I want to put a lot of passages in front of you because this is such a controversial area uh, in evangelicalism today and has been throughout church history, at least the last 100, 200 years. So we want to be careful to make sure that we substantiate what we're going to talk about. So before we get into that fire hydrant of passages and things that we need to talk about, let's pray together. Pray with me, please. God, we want to bow with a conscious awareness of your provision in our lives, not just for our meals. I know we often think about that as we're in the habit, as we ought to be, of being thankful for our food every day. But we thank you for the things that we have analogized in your word that go from food and water, bread and water, just bringing us back to the profound reminder that the ultimate sustenance of our lives, the bread of life and the living water that you provide for us in Christ, that we have what we need for all eternity because of the substitutionary atonement of Christ that we've studied, the things that we've looked at in this semester so far that remind us how important it is that we see with a real clear eye how profoundly lost we were. I know we can sing that, that we were blind and now we see, we were lost and now we're found, but give us, God, as we continue to study these things, a real sense of just profound thanksgiving, a great sense of relief that our sin has been nailed to the cross, our our sin not in part but the whole. And and we don't bear it anymore. We don't have a sense of that coming uh, dread of condemnation. While there's many things as we're dealing with on the weekends that should give us pause, many things that should give us more than pause, should give us a real sense of uh, an unsettled sobriety about our, our daily lives, that we live them circumspectly and carefully. There's so much that we should rejoice in as we study this topic of soteriology that you have provided for us what is needed for eternity. And God, I pray in a room this size with this kind of team here that assembles on Thursday, I would like to idealistically think there's no one outside the purview of grace and of conversion and regeneration and justification, all these themes we've talked about. But God, I would just ask, knowing the realities of the fallen world we live in, that if there's anyone here that as we talk through these issues, they are outside of the realities of these truths, that you'd give them that conviction that the Spirit is so good in bringing, convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, I pray that would be the case so that as we study this, we would all really truly be participants in them. And God, as we think about something now that uh, will last from now until we see you face to face, this topic of sanctification, I pray you'd help us to navigate all the popular trends that seem to buck the biblical picture. They seem to go against and seek to attack the biblical idea of sanctification. So give us, God, a, a clear mind tonight. Give me the ability to clearly articulate this truth. I pray things that are said tonight would be accurate, that it would be helpful, that it would edify us, it would be a safeguard for us, that it would reinforce those of us that have heard these things maybe all the way back to the Aggressive Sanctification Conference a few years back, that we would be uh, just guarded in our thinking, reinforced in our thinking to be able to have a clear idea of what the Bible teaches regarding our sanctification and that we would uh, be able to make a clear and, and swift and very compact, concise defense of these biblical ideas because so many, as I've said repeatedly already in this prayer, God, you know our, um, 
assaulting this, uh, this biblical doctrine. So help us with this tonight, and I pray this would be a helpful time. Give us that edifying and, and equipped feeling as we leave tonight, having sensed that we have thought through things in a very cogent and logical way that will prepare us to not only hang on to this truth and not be driven by every wind of doctrine, but be able to appropriate them in our daily lives. So we commit the time to you, God. Make it a great study tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week you remember, and I did briefly telegraph what we were going to do tonight, but we started with the idea of the concept of salvation in the past, eternity past, and in the historic past with the death of Christ, salvation and that biblical use of the term in the future, yet to come. We looked at several aspects of that, and then we started on the realities that we experience in terms of regeneration and justification. And I said we'd spend the whole time this week on sanctification. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with a study of the words. And of course, there are a variety of forms in the, in the English New Testaments that we read and Old Testaments as well. But let's work through the words that we find in the Bible. The idea and usage of the word kadash, which comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, kadash. It is translated, kadash is translated in various ways. And of course, I always encourage you to use your Logos Bible software. And if you do word study on this particular Hebrew word that we know of in our English Bibles as sanctify, sanctified, and sanctification, you'll find the variety of of, of ways that it's translated that will certainly show you with a good translation like the ESV, the contextual meaning of this word as it's used in the Old Testament. And you can see here at the bottom, this big section, this uh, blue part of the pie, consecrate. We don't use that word a lot in our everyday language, but you get the idea, consecrated, consecrating, the idea of having something be set apart, consecrated for some special use. Of course, holy and holiness, which is its uh, root word, gadosh in Hebrew, uh, often translated directly across as that. You'll see the orange up there, dedicate, dedicated, dedicates, uh, all the forms of that, something that is uh, dedicated for a special use. And there's our word that we find that we're, you know, the heading of this topic, sanctified, sanctify, sanctify, set apart, which you've often heard that uh, as, a, as a good and I think very clear definition of this idea and a few others there in the smaller portions of the pie, Kadesh. The New Testament word in Greek, Hagiadzo, Hagiadzo, that's the verbal form of the word hagios, which you hear us talk about from time to time, such an important biblical word. Hagiadzo that translates sanctify in the New Testament, you'll see as you look, for instance, on your Lagos word study, which I encourage you all to do regularly with any word that pops off the page in your Bible reading or anything else you're studying. Sanctify, sanctified, sanctifies, and sanctify, all the uses of that word we do see as the primary definition of this word or translation of this word. Holy, you'll see it just like in Hebrew, coming straight across as holy. Here's a word that's entered into our English vocabulary in the New Testament from the word hagiadzo, which is sacred, hallowed. There it is again in English, consecrate, consecrated, set as in set aside or set apart, set distinct from the others. So hagiadzo, kadesh, And then this is important to throw in just because we get so many English words from it, and that is the Latin Vulgate. Of course, that's the fourth century. We talk about that from time to time in our study of the Bible into Latin, uh, the Vulgate by Jerome, late fourth, fourth century. That became the Bible of the church. So, so much of theology and so much discussion and even the development of English has so much influence from Latin. And so you see the word sanctus, and you should immediately identify that in terms of, of several English derivatives. Uh, some people call this building a sanctuary, which of course it's not. 
uh, because we do a lot of things in, in here, but a lot of churches, you might have grown up in a church that calls the main preaching hall the sanctuary, uh, just like the Old Testament building was sometimes called the sanctuary. It's set apart for that. You couldn't set up tables and have a meal inside the Old Testament sanctuary. It was set apart for one specific use. Even within that, and we don't use that much in our English Bibles anymore, but inside of that, the, the, the Holy of Holies was called, in, in some translations and certainly in some discussions, the inner sanctum. So you had the sanctuary, and then you had the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. And there's the idea of, of that Latin word coming into the use of the inner room. And of course, we get the words at the top of the heading here, sanctify, sanctified, sanctification. Uh, even get into Spanish, we get our word Santa Ana, San Juan, San Juan Capistrano, all those sands and santas, both in the, uh, the masculine and the feminine. These ideas all go back to that Latin word from the fourth century in the Bible, sanctus. Now, let's talk about the usage. Now, usually I'm going to prove all these things with various passages, but let me just summarize these for you without any biblical texting proof texting for you, because a lot of what we're going to develop in the rest of of the night will uh, certainly substantiate this. But let's get the lay of the land, 30,000 feet. How does the Bible use these things? First of all, of God. Now, if you think about the word gadosh or gadesh, uh, depending on the form you're talking about, the Hebrew word, that's the word gadosh that's used in Isaiah 6 when the cherubim are flying around and they're saying, holy, holy, holy. Gadosh, gadosh, gadosh is the Lord God Almighty. That idea of God means what? He's completely set apart from all others. He's unique. He's, he's not like every other being in, in the cosmos. He is the only one of a kind, the only one like him. There's the creator and everybody else is the created. And that, by the way, couldn't be said of God before there was any sin in the world. Before anybody fell, before there was any, any iniquity found in Satan, you could say God was still gadosh. He was still set apart. In that sense, he was sanctified. He, he was kadesh in the Bible. Uh, and of course, since the fall, then sometimes we want to make that clarity. He is holy in that he is not like any kind of sinful thing you might see in an angel or in a human being. The things that they do that fall short of the glory of God, we would say that in many passages, God is holy and that he does no wrong. Uh, the holy God would not pervert justice. The holy God would not lie. So the sense of a morality to the idea of Gadosh or Gadesh is then injected since the fall, because we want to make clear, not only is he ontologically, in terms of his, his being, separate and different than every other th- creature, but in his morality, he is set apart from anything that is sinful. In that sense, he's set apart from Michael ontologically as a being, but in terms of holiness, well, Michael's holy. He, he lives up to the standard of God because he's not fallen. He hasn't sinned, but yet he's, he is set apart from every sinful characteristic in the universe. So the idea of God being holy is certainly makes sense. Now, it's funny if you look through the Bible, you'll find the word holy, both in Greek and Hebrew, referring to things. And if you only think of holiness in terms of ethical terms or moral terms, it's kind of weird. How can a, how can a thing be holy? Well, just like we take the word sanctus and turn it into the word sanctuary and say, well, this particular building that you grew up in was only used for preaching, so it's a sanctuary, only used for worship services, you could see where that building has no ethical or moral qualities, but we're really saying that it is set apart for special use. And in that sense, you've got the forks or the tongs in the altar, or you've got the basin that you would wash the sacrifices in, or you have the altar. Those are holy to God. They, they have a special use. 
And in that sense, let's just invert it because we'll find the parity of this being important later. It's also set apart for, from ordinary use. When the Levites were given the uh, ingredients for the anointing oil for the priests and the, and the kings, the, the ingredients of that was gadosh. It was only to be used, or gadesh, and that it was, once you made it, it was set apart and it was sanctified. You couldn't use it for anything else under threat of death. You would die. It's a capital offense to take that special ingredient and use that kind of fragrant perfume, which is kind of what it is, that oil that, that smelled so good, to use it for anything other than anointing kings and, and priests. So it's set apart from ordinary use. It doesn't mean it has any ethical or moral value to it. It just means it's, it's set apart. It's different of people. And this is what we'll spend our time on tonight, the idea of people being sanctified. And in that sense, let's think about it this way. Much like a candelabra in the in, in the temple of Solomon, you couldn't take that and say, well, I'm really, it's really dark out in my house. Can I borrow the, you know, the candelabra, the, you know, the lampstand from the temple and go and light my, my bedroom because I can't see very well? You couldn't use it for that. And so it is for the people of God. They're said to be set apart for God, just like something might be set apart for God's special use. So it is of people. And secondly, here's the other aspect that we're going to be dealing with throughout the night, and that is set apart from sin. Just like God is described as being set apart from Lucifer's kind of, of selfishness or of Peter's lack of fidelity when pressed or Ananias and Sapphira's deception, God is set apart from all that. So the people of God are called to be set apart from sin. They shouldn't be like that. Peter shouldn't deny Christ. Ananias and Sapphira shouldn't lie. Those are the kinds of things that certainly takes on the ethical, moral quality of the word sanctify, sanctified and sanctification. Clear? That's simple? Nobody lost on that? Great. Let's take those two subpoints there, set apart for God and set apart from sin, to start to understand a distinction that if you do not understand it, someone's going to come to you and tell you things about sanctification. You're going to pull a book off the shelf of, of the Christian bookstore, and you're going to read about sanctification. They're going to quote a proof text, and if you do not clearly see the distinction, you're going to believe something that is not biblically true. Does that sound like some things we've talked about, like baptism? Even last week we talked about baptism. You have someone quote a verse on baptism to you, and you may think, if I don't know if I'm talking about water baptism or if I'm talking about being baptized into the Spirit, by baptized actually in, into Christ by the Spirit, if you don't know the distinction, if you don't know which one we're talking about, then you're in trouble because you're going to run into heresy at some point if you're not careful. So same thing with sanctification. The English word sanctification, both from Gadesh and, and Hagiadzo, are going to show up in our English text as sanctify, sanctification, and sanctified. And if we don't know which one we're talking about, we're going to come to some wrong conclusions about God's expectations and God's realities for us. So we'll start with letter A and make that number two on our outline, and let's fill it in this way. Let's call it positional sanctification. So in the parentheses, let's just make it redundant, make sure we understand it, and that is what we're talking about here is being set apart for God. That's positional. That's something that's either true of you or not true of you, and you're never in process in that regard. And in light of what we're dealing with in previous weeks, let's just put it this way. As odd as that may sound to God, because he doesn't have some of the sequential issues that we have thinking through our experience in becoming a Christian. But if you want to think technically about it, though they happen simultaneously to God, when we are declared righteous, that's our idea, our definition of justification. At that moment, you are then set apart for God. Your status before God changes, and we illustrate that in a number of ways from this platform. When your life gets placed into Christ, there's a word, baptizo, you get placed into Christ, you are now set apart for God. 
That happens by the work of the Spirit. It happens with the declaration of justification already happening. God declares you righteous, and now you are God's man. You're God's woman. You're God's person. You're God's child. You're on God's team. The result of sanctification. When Paul was recounting his conversion... King Agrippa here in Acts 26, he says about what God had called him to do. He called him to open their eyes, the Gentiles' eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light. Does that sound like conversion experience we talked about like four weeks ago on the experience of salvation? Yes. From the power of Satan to God, from the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light. Okay, that sounds like someone's testimony they got saved. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. Okay, if there's any confusion, that's what we're talking about, the point of conversion. They were declared righteous. They're no longer bearing the guilt of their sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So at that point, Jesus says to Saul, you are going to tell people about how to get saved. You're going to see them open their eyes. They're going to turn from darkness to light. They're going to have a transference from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the enemy to the, to the kingdom of God. They're going to receive forgiveness. And then guess what they're going to have? They're going to get their place among those who are hagiadzod, those who are set apart by faith in me. That's positional. It's the result of justification. You cannot be positionally sanctified without being declared righteous by God. Let her be. It is something that God alone does. If you're into all your Calvinism, because you're reading all the Calvinistic stuff, high, high reform stuff, listen, this is what we would call monergistic. This is something that God works alone. Monos only, ergos, monogistic, the idea of working. God works this by himself. This is something that God chooses to do. It's something that God does at the point of your conversion. Second Thess 2.13, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you, beloved brothers, by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. There it is, done, completed deal, perfect tense, through sanctification, setting apart, by the spirit and belief in the truth. God has done that. He did it because he chose to do it. He chose first fruits, saved you through what? Being placed into Christ, being set apart for Christ by the Spirit. Simple. It's a one-time act. You can't be any more sanctified than you are if we're talking about positional sanctification. If you're a Christian, you've been justified. It's going to happen once. As Hebrews 10, here's another perfect tense verb here, Hebrews 10, 10. And by that will, speaking of Christ's will, we've been sanctified, or God's will rather, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he paid for the sins once for all, We have been sanctified by that one payment. It's a done deal. The context is all about having this as a done deal. We don't need the continual sacrifices. The the, the Eucharistic meal doesn't continue to somehow infuse grace to us. We're not re-sacrificing Christ. Christ died for us. We're right with God because we have been sanctified. There you go. Completed action. You can read books on this, as I often do, and I find that a lot of people talk about sanctification, and they do not make the distinction in any way in their writings between positional and the other kind we're going to talk about, setting apart from sin, and they quote a lot of verses and miss the entire point of most of what we're going to talk about tonight. Lastly, this will make sense to you now as to why you can be called this the first day that you're a Christian, the resultant title. What's the title that we get? Well, here comes the Latin Vulgate into our English translations, all from the word hagios in the Bible, that Greek word in the New Testament meaning holy one. Here it comes. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, the church of God, he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, called to be, now here's our new name, saints, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. So if you're calling on the Lord, you're saved, you've been sanctified positionally, then you get this new title, you're a saint. You don't have to be canonized, you don't need a miracle ascribed to you, you don't have to be dead for any number of years, you are a saint. 
You are one who is set apart. It's a done deal, completed action. That's your, your new title. You see how that works together there in that passage? Hagiadzo and Hagios, the idea that we have been sanctified and now we're called saints. Philippians chapter uh, 4, verse 21, I wanted to show you the parallelism to a word that you're probably more comfortable with, and that's the word brothers. Philippians 4, 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. So that's what you guys do in Philippi. The brothers who are with me greet you. Do you see the symmetry there? I mean, Paul growing up on Hebrew parallelism of the Old Testament and all the poetry of the Old Testament, here's a great explanation often that we get of words as he understands them as you see this nice parody and this, this, this balance between these two sentences. Greet every saint. Uh, the brothers who are with me greet you. So out there, you greet those saints, and the saints here greet you. You greet those brothers. The brothers here greet you. If you are a brother, that means you're an adopted child of God, then you're a saint. That's not new for anybody. But if you're Catholic, that feels uncomfortable. If you're a Catholic, I would, I would recommend you, you call each other saints. That might be helpful to reprogram your thinking about what sainthood is. Your wife may not be interested in calling you Saint Tim, but that's what you are if you're a Christian. There's no way around that. That's what the Bible teaches. That's the resultant title. Positional sanctification. If you're positionally sanctified, that means you've been set apart. And it happens simultaneously with justification, though grammatically I said it's the result of justification. It all happens at the same time, but one logically follows the other. Good enough? Let's talk about the second part, which will be the rest of our time here. Progressive sanctification. And this one is often called practical sanctification. Practical sanctification, progressive sanctification. What we're talking about here is being set apart from sin, which if you want to talk about sin as a principle, I suppose, or a domain, then you could say we're still talking maybe about positional sanctification, but that's not what we're dealing with in so many passages of the Bible that says we ought to be holy in all of our behavior. We're not talking about that anymore. We're talking about sin as something you might do on Friday afternoon. That's what we're talking about, and let's be set apart from that. If if there are five sins that you would otherwise commit tomorrow and you commit two, well, then you're being set apart from three of them. You have a practical disconnect from those things. That's the sanctification we're talking about when we talk about progressive sanctification. Now, I don't know if you would have any interest in it. Some people feel very erudite, very scholarly by getting all these names. And I started down that path to go through all the different views of sanctification, the Pentecostalism, the Wesleyan, Chaferian, you know, you've got uh, Keswickian, there's all these interesting things. But since you'll never probably use those words or meet someone that says, hi, I believe in Keswickian sanctification, I decided to dump all that. But In looking through all the, what I would call, misleading views of sanctification, I decided to cherry-pick a few of the common themes in some of them and say, okay, here's the problem that we see recycled throughout church history in wrongly considering how this progressive sanctification takes place. So let me save us a lot of time and a lot of big words that ultimately, like, I don't know, a Keswickian, I don't even know what that is. Uh, I could explain it to you and then you'd forget it because you'd never meet someone who's Keswickian. Or you might, or you're going you're to meet someone Keswickian, but the problem is today, especially in Southern California, they won't even know they're Keswickian or Schaeferian. But they're out there and you can go to seminary or Bible school and you can learn those names if you really want to. Number one, this one's the easy one and you'd say, oh, I already know that. You teach about that all the time. Great. This, though, is an aberrant view of sanctification. And that is, if I progressively continue to be less and less sinful in my life and I choose to turn away from sin, say no to sin and yes to righteousness more and more, then you know what? I'll get justified. In other words, my sanctification is my means to justification, and all of you would stand up and protest that one. Mild-mannered Orange Countyans, you'd say, no, you cannot earn your justification with sanctification. Impossible. Don't need any help with that one. This one, though, you're going to run into all the time. 
You want to be sanctified, here's what you need. You need, I just called it this, cute Mike Fabara's phraseology. Here you go. Christianity 2.0. You need something secondary. Now, this, the reason I thought this would be a better way to teach through the aberrant views of sanctification is because it's called in different circles different things. For instance, you've heard this, this phrase, haven't you? Smile at me if you have. Second blessing theology. Second blessing theology. Pentecostals, for instance, will teach that you cannot, here's what the, 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 the denominational website reads, you cannot adequately worship, witness, or work for the Lord without the second blessing, which is the second work of the Holy Spirit, which is evidenced by the speaking in tongues, which to them doesn't mean what we see the three times in the book of Acts. It means some indistinguishable, untranslatable, ecstatic utterance coming out of your mouth. Now, if you do that, now that's a sign of the second blessing of the Spirit, and therefore, you're now in a new league where you can have the kind of witness, work, and worship in the church and in your relationship with God that you couldn't have before. So you've taken this huge step up if you just have this crisis moment with the Spirit and you begin to speak in things that no one understands. Or maybe you grew up this way like I did. You can go along as a Christian, but at some point you really should become a disciple. And oftentimes that second blessing moment that they don't call second blessing in those circles, they'll call it this, you really need to dedicate your life to Christ. You're a Christian, but you need to dedicate your life to Christ. Now, sometimes, because the language got sloppy in the 80s, people started talking about, well, becoming a Christian is a sort of dedication, but this second one, we'll call that a rededication. How many people have talked about that? I went to camp. I became a Christian when I was a kid because I asked Jesus into my heart. But then I went to camp, and I got serious, and I rededicated my life to God. Well, you sure are different since your rededication. You bet. Me and God now, we're like this. What is that? That's a view of sanctification that says I'm kind of on the junior varsity team, but then I had this encounter at camp or some crisis moment in my bedroom, and all of a sudden now, I'm now in Christianity 2.0. You see, there's a lot of views we could look at. Keswickian theology, Chaferian. I keep using those words because they're the funniest sounding ones, but both of those have a sense of this second-tiered Christianity, and you're going to hear about that, and you have people telling you that. Well, when I really got to this place in my spiritual life, then it was like, hit the Nas, hit the turbo, and now I'm into a whole different kind of relationship with God. Now, you've been around enough of, I would hope, my teaching to know that so often that experiential change is not Christianity 2.0, because there is no such thing in the Bible. It's not moving from some kind of carnal Christianity to spiritually-minded Christianity, right? which is a complete misinterpretation of, of 1 Corinthians 2. What's happening is so many people live with the thought that they were Christians because they had some kind of move toward God, but then they become real Christians, and you can't argue the radical change that's taken place, but it's not that they went to 2.0 Christianity, it's that they actually became a Christian. You know you've seen that, haven't you? Happens all the time. Now, if you get clarity about the gospel, you'll realize whatever it was you did in Christianity 1.0 in your mind wasn't Christianity at all. And that's the common experience that we have. But unfortunately, there's so much of this false view and, and erroneous, what I call it, misleading theories of sanctification that some people will still say, well, I was a Christian, but then I really became super Christian, spiritually minded Christian, second blessing Christian, turbo Christian, what varsity Christian, whatever they call it, discipleship kicked in. Um, beware of that. It's not biblical. I've talked about that in other sessions, uh, maybe not in this semester, but important for you to know. This one's kind of dying out, certainly in our laid-back American 21st century church, but if you study any church history at all, uh, and you may have some people that, that still believe this, some form of it, but they'll say, you know what? You can be perfectly sanctified now in this life. It's possible. 
uh, if you study church history, you watched how maybe not John and Charles Wesley, but certainly their followers began to teach what they called Wesleyan perfectionism. That you could, in your sanctification, get to a place where sometimes it was with a crisis step like in the second blessing theology, but you can get to a place where you do not have a problem with sin. That sin battle doesn't take place. Now, if you really scoured Wesley's theology, you'll find the seeds of it, but you won't find the kind of hubris that I think often followed in, in, in the people uh, of Wesleyanism that often said yes. And I've met these people. I, I, I lived in college with a guy uh, for a while that believed this, and, and he believed he didn't sin anymore. And I lived with him for like three months, and I can attest he sins, but he doesn't see it because he believed he's reached a place of sanctified perfection. Uh, and by that, he means he doesn't have the problems that he had any longer. He's freed from sins. Now, if you talk to various forms of people that believe in some aspect of, of perfectionism, they'll define it differently. So some people say, well, I don't mean I'm absolutely perfect, but I got to a place where I don't have that same abiding struggle, whatever. More on that later as we look at the biblical view. Then you'll find you guys are reading the Puritans, you're getting those Reformed uh, theologies out, and you'll say, well, I kind of, what I keep reading is this, that I'm always going to be a no good, lousy, you know, terrible, rotten worm before God. And I'm just, I'm so, uh, you talk about depravity, I'm so depraved, I, I'm a no good nothing, and all my works are, are like filthy rags. And they use all these passages that you would think to use about the non-Christian's efforts to become saved. And you say, of course you can't earn your salvation. And they're going to be looking at their lives going, well, you know what? I'm just a, I'm a worm. I mean, uh, prone to wander. Lord, you know, you know, and off we go. I'm just, that's another view of sanctification that I think we need to understand is alive and well, particularly for those that have moved from a kind of anti-intellectual Christianity to a high view of God, high view of scripture Christianity. They, they keep talking about their total depravity and you can maybe jettison a brick or two of your depravity as, as God divinely kind of squeezes a little bit of that out. But it's a very pessimistic self view and, and it really defies a lot of what we talked about last week in terms of regeneration. Overview of some of the high points of what I would believe and, and try to teach you are misleading theories of sanctification. Letter B, back of your worksheet. Biblical realities. As heretical as it may sound in our current climate, particularly of those with a high view of God and a high view of Scripture, let's make this very clear biblically. When it comes to sanctification, it is going to require personal effort. Personal effort. And in that sense, if you want to think in terms of reform terminology, this is now something that you could rightly say is no longer monergistic. Now it becomes synergistic. Now all of a sudden we recognize I am providing effort in this quest of progressive sanctification. Several passages. As a matter of fact, I could spend the rest of the night, I literally could, for the rest of our time doing nothing but quoting passages with this one theme. But let me just give you a couple. First Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. I don't know how anyone could read this and, and, and come to a conclusion other than what the plain imagery and analogy leading me to think, wow, this Christian life is going to be a lot of effort. When Paul employs illustrations like this, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? Now, if I said, we're going to run a race tonight, you're not thinking this is easy street. You're going to think this is going to be a lot of effort. This is going to be work. And it is, but only one receives the prize. What kind of, is this a jog around the, the, the building tonight? No, you got to run in such a way that you can obtain that prize. Because every athlete, now I've gone from, you know, Saturday afternoon jogger to, uh, now I'm being called an athlete, exercises God control. Is that what it says? No, and here's a word we often say, but we often don't think about even what it means. Self-control. An athlete's got to exercise self-control in all things. His diet, his regimen, his exercise, his sleep, his training, his weightlifting, 
his sprints. An athlete's got to work on all these things and has got to say no to things he wants to do and say yes to things that he may not want to do if he's going to compete to win the prize. Now, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we... Now, notice the implied verbs there, all the verbs that we saw. I've got to exercise self-control. I've got to run in a race like a runner competing for a prize. We do that. There's the analogy. That's the Christian life for us. We do it for an imperishable wreath, one that will never go away. So, speaking autobiographically for Paul, I do not run aimlessly. I'm not jogging, and I don't box like I'm just sparring in the air, beating the air. But I, look at this, discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What kind of farce would this be if I don't keep my body disciplined and under control, and I'm telling people about becoming Christians and following Christ, but I'm not really following Christ because I'm just kind of let go, let God person. And so he says, no, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a discipline. It's, there's nothing more painful to me than if you were to invite me on a long run to win a prize. I'm not coming. I'm just not joining you for that. And the idea is, why? Because all the things involved in that would be to me torture and agony. Well, there's an aspect of that you cannot deny in the Christian life, and it's everywhere in the Bible, everywhere. He ends the book this way. He's signing off here, just about to the end of the book, saying, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, that's a, an admonition to them that they work. Keep working. Be steadfast. Don't stop working. Be immovable. When, you're, when there's an opportunity to sit down and eat a, eat a ham sandwich, keep on running, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your Christian life, lived in the domain of being in Christ, this is not for nothing. All this work is, is, is worth it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved brothers, as always you've obeyed, I mean, that's been their pattern in the past, so now... Not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now he says, work out your salvation. Now I'm saved. What's the present reality of it? We had two last week. Regeneration, uh, justification. Regeneration, justification. Now we're talking about sanctification. Working out my salvation. I'm doing that with our theme of the weekends here. We'll hit it hard this weekend. Fear and trembling. My Christian life is a kind of running. So that after I preach to others, I myself am not disqualified. That I'm proving the reality of my positional sanctification by a progressive and practical sanctification that is certainly going to involve personal effort. Now, again, if I haven't proved that to you and in a day when people are denying that, like I said, I guess I'll have to spend all night, one night, just verse after verse after verse after verse saying this. You're denying the obvious if you allow your theology that I believe is errant to, to ignore the clear teaching of, of a multitude of passages. So let us just all admit, as heretical as it sounds to some who've read some of the new wave of sanctification reading from Crossway or whatever, listen, I got to tell you this, sanctification is going to require personal effort. And, and your, your, your mind is out the window if, if you deny it. You're listening to people that are using biblical truths in unbiblical ways. I know they're quoting the Bible, but they're not coming to biblical conclusions because this is a clear, undeniable, indispensable part of our sanctification. And some of you are sitting around buying some of that, and you need to recognize as you're not working hard on your sanctification because you think that in some way violates the principle of grace. Tonight, I need to tell you as your pastor, you've got to get to work on your sanctification. And it's going to be like training and running. If you want to win this prize, you've got to recognize this sanctification is a critical thing for you to expend a lot of effort on. And some of us don't spend effort on it like we ought to. Hey, Pastor Mike, you quoted Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, and you didn't quote the rest of the verse. Okay, I'm about to. It also involves God's active involvement. It certainly is necessitating God's active involvement. 
You are not going to be sanctified. And that means sin less this week than you did last week. Sin less this year than you did last year. Sin less and be more Christ-like next decade as opposed to this decade unless God is working in you. Now, the last thing we saw in Philippians 12, 2 is you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Things that our society doesn't want. Christians in our day, they do not want to work and they don't want to fear and they don't want to tremble. They don't want any of that. I want a pleasant Christianity, as I often say, with fuzzy things and kittens and puppies and Twitter posts with lots of colors and sunsets. I want that Christianity. I don't want those things. And the way they'll get to ignore those things is by quoting the rest of this verse and saying, it's all about this, man. It's an escalator. I don't have to run bleachers here. There's got to be an escalator involved in this. Because it says right there, it's God who is at work in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's God that's working in me. You're right, it is. But here's the synergistic part of it. Synergistic, sin, both of you. S-Y-N, together. Uh, Ergos, the second half of that word. Synergistic. You are both working. God is working in you, and you are working like an athlete training to win a prize. God is at work, and you're not going to do it without God. But God is requiring your effort. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, this is interesting. That's a statement that sounds like a lot to do on his to-do list. He's working. He's doing this. He's, he's trying to get everybody trained and built up. And he says, for this I toil. That's a big word. Struggling. Agonizomai. Struggling. We get the word agony for that. He's working hard with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, that sounds like a bit of a you know, a a hard conundrum for our minds to work out. That sounds paradoxical. It's meant to, because that is the reality. You are going to be working and toiling and struggling in your Christian life. In this case, he's trying to get people mature in Christ because that's his calling. He's a steward that's got to be found faithful, executing and dispensing his gifts, which are to build up these Gentiles. But he says, you know what, when I'm doing this, I recognize this, that God is credited with the energy that is within me. More on that later tonight. First Corinthians chapter 12, verses four through six. I thought this may help you. The church is filled with regenerate people. I hope it's filled with regenerate people. Most people, I would hope, are regenerate. And if they're regenerate, the Bible says that the spirit of God is going to manifest himself through every individual for the common good of the church. And you know this passage, it's about the spiritual gifting or spiritual giftedness. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. He's trying to get them to recognize, stop with your thinking, this is a real one and this is not, or this is a good one and that is not. The hierarchy, there's a lot of division in Corinth, as you know. And there are varieties of services, ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who, now here's the word I wanted you to note, empowers them all in everyone. Now, I thought this might help you recognize the synergistic part of this. Because if you have a spiritually, if you're spiritually aware of the way God has given you some kind of giftedness to do ministry, then I hope you recognize, yeah, if, if this passage is true, I understand that God is empowering me to do it. But if you do that and do it the way you're supposed to, toiling and struggling in it, I think you know to do it the way God would have you do it, it certainly is synergistic. There is so much inside of me that is tired and exhausted I thought of that today when I was exercising my spiritual gift, getting ready to teach tonight. So I'm spending all this time, and you know what? I'm just like everybody else. I would love to get up out of my chair and do something else. Hours of sitting there and studying and working and researching and reading and creating and crafting. I would love to, to, I don't know, go, go to the park and sit and read a book about something else. 
but yet I'm there having to do what I do to dispense my gifts like you have to do sometimes when you're sitting there thinking, I got to serve the body of Christ. I got to prepare this lesson for the Sunday school class. I got to get to work and deal with these people and try and help with this ministry project we're doing. It's going to feel like work, but you're going to look back and you're going to recognize something good came out of that. Then God was at work in me, empowering that to become something good because every good and perfect gift comes from God. So we recognize the mystery, if you will, of God's active involvement, and we credit him with that. But just like I've said before, you can't get out of bed without God empowering the cells in your body. Even non-Christians are empowered by God, not for the good that we are and not for the fruit that we are. But we've got to recognize that God does not want us to be like the people he warned in Deuteronomy who would enter the land, work the land, till the land, plant their crops, grow their crops, fill their barns and silos, sit back and think it was their own power that did it. Now, it was their own power that did it. That was their experience. But the Bible said it wouldn't happen unless I get involved. Does that sound like that great Psalm 127? Unless the Lord builds the house, labors labor in vain. Because you know what it is to work and have no product. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. There's the mystery of it. But for the watchman, he has to to yawn through the night, drink his coffee, try to stay awake, and work at his post. Be vigilant. The builders have to work and have to sweat in the hot sun and do that work. But the Bible says there's something going on behind the scenes where God is getting it done and, and, and getting credit for empowering the workers. So I thought I'd throw that passage in. God's active involvement in the giftedness passage may help with that because it uses the word empower. Contra the Wesleyans, some of the Keswickian theology from London. Keswick is not a person, by the way. Like Wesley was a person. Keswick was a place in the suburbs of London where this theology got going. It influenced Moody Bible Institute and some of the movements in the Bible Institute movement. But let me say this. When it comes to the Christian life, it will be a lifelong battle. You will not be free from this battle as long as you have the thing that's mentioned here, and that is the flesh. And you're going to have the flesh as long as you live. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, how long are we sojourners and exiles? Well, until we reach our home. As Hebrews 11 says, until we get to that city whose builder and architect is God. So until you walk through the gates of the kingdom, you're a sojourner and an exile. And as that, you've got to know you're going to have to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, that's a really close enemy that I have, the, the flesh. I live in it. I'm a part of that. I'm a homogeneous whole. As a human being, I have spirit. That's my software, who I am. I shouldn't say I have it. I am that. But I'm encased in this flesh, and there's always going to be passions that work against my sanctification. They're waging war against my soul is the dramatic language used here. So as long as I have my flesh, I, I'm, I'm going to be in, in a battle. It's going to be a battle. Romans 8.23, thankfully, that battle is going to be over. But until then, look at this word, I'm going to groan. Not only the creation, which is personified as growing, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. And if you don't groan as a Christian, and by that I mean you struggle with the reality of trying to work your salvation out with fear and trembling. If you don't have that sense of, oh, this is hard, then I don't know what's going on with you because the Spirit is going to work within you to drive you to holiness. It's going to be a struggle with your flesh and you're going to groan and you're going to wait eagerly when the time you don't have to groan, which is what? Our final adoption. This is what we looked at last time is our future salvation. We're going to eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, which is the encasement of the place where we'll find that thing the Bible calls flesh, my body, my fallen body. One day I'll get a remanufactured, unfallen body, a, a redeemed and glorified body. But in the meantime, I'm waiting and groaning because it isn't going to be easy. No perfectionism there. Problem with perfectionism is my roommate back in college, an older man who took me into his home, 
problem with that kind of perfectionistic thinking is you think you've arrived at, at some level. You, I mean, a lot of people would deny its complete arrival, but it's a kind of categorical arrival that puts them in a place of not feeling that vulnerability. And the Bible warns us against that. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If you think you stand, you better take heed because that's the time, as I said recently in a sermon, you're most vulnerable, which may have been last Sunday. It's a lifelong battle. And I don't think anybody in the room, even if you have Wesleyan tendencies of thinking that there is some place where you've reached some plateau, I, I, I can't imagine you are fully conscious as a Christian and don't sense the battle that we all struggle with in terms of our sanctification. All right, number four. We're still on letter B, right? Yeah, number four. Let's call it this an advancing trajectory. And I, I try to avoid reusing the word progressive, but we're, we're progressing, we're advancing, we're progressing. There's an upward progression. That's what the Bible would teach. Look at this contrast. Romans chapter 6, verse 19. Thinking about our degeneration as fallen people. Just as you once presented your members, that means the parts of your body, as slaves to impurity. You kept doing sinful things. And to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. And that certainly echoes the first chapter, which says people in their sin and indulging in their sin, God keeps turning them over to even worse levels of sin. Well, that was the the course of our non-Christian lives, at least the common non-Christian life. You go from one kind of sin, you get comfortable with it, you fall to another level of lawlessness, moving away from God's standard. So now, compare that degeneration to the present, to now. And now, offer or present your members, the parts of your body, as slaves to righteousness, leading to, now in one word, he captures that picture of a cascading degeneration by talking about this upward, progressive, advancing trajectory, sanctification, leading to sanctification. Now, what is it? Are we sanctified or are we not sanctified? Because the other passage says, I've already been sanctified by Christ's death once and, once and for all. Is that some kind of God speak outside of time and he sees it as completed, though it's not? No, that's positional sanctification. This is progressive sanctification. And it's a process. That one word encapsulates that whole advancing trajectory. And if I want to look at the goal and where I'm headed, even though I, I've already submitted to you in my teaching, at least, that you're not going to reach perfection in this life, what's the picture? Here it is. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew he predestined to be con- become to be conformed rather to the image of his son so that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers he is going to christ be the head of the parade the template for people and we should act more like him as john says those who claim to know him should walk as he walks if you're in christ do what he does act like he acts respond like he responds so that's god's goal and he's moving me in that direction progressively he's doing it with an advancing kind of trajectory Another good picture of this advancement is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. The image you might remember in this passage is Moses had his face veiled because when he saw the glory of God on Mount Sinai, he came down in that, that fo- those photons. I mean, some kind of special weird thing God did. It started to fade with time. And he didn't want them to see that it was fading with time, so he put a veil on. Well, us... We don't have a veil. Our faces are unveiled and we're beholding the Lord. This is poetic speech, I understand. Being transformed into the same image. Now look at this phrase. From one degree of glory to another degree. So I'm reflecting that kind of Christ-likeness in advancing steps, in an advancing trajectory. And all of this comes from the, from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We credit Him with that. And we just quote uh, Philippians 2.13? No, we quote verse 12 as well. We work out our salvation, but we know ultimately it's God who's credited with every good thing. He's the one who gets credit for bringing this reality about, though I'm working, I should be working and striving and toiling with all my might and advancing trajectory, which I should say pastorally to you. Don't get discouraged if last week was worse than two weeks ago, because it is going to be, I think, for some of us, 
and up and down, but I want you to look far enough in your Christian life, if it even has to be three years, is your Christian life at a place today that you could say is categorically advancing to be more like Christ than it was three years ago? You need to think honestly about those things. And that's an arbitrary number, right? Make it a year, make it five years, but make sure you're seeing some things. You know, we might have hit a big brick wall last year. You know, something bad happened. You fell to something, but just let's get through these valleys and peaks and make sure that we're seeing an advancing trajectory because that certainly is God's goal. He wants to work that in us. Going to take our work, obviously, synergistic work, but that's what we want to see just like we would have seen without God's grace, a continuing degeneration into increasing lawlessness. We want to see now increasing righteousness in our lives. Letter C, how do we get this done? What is the biblical means for us being sanctified? Positionally set apart as gods, how do I get increasingly set apart from sin? Well, this is going to sound like your grandpa's church, which was probably better than most churches today, but you're going to need the Bible. Talk about sanctification. Jesus said this. I mean, we could quote a lot of passages on the Bible's involvement in my sanctification, like letting the word of Christ richly dwell in me and speaking to one another in Psalms. The scripture is the key. He said this, sanctify them. This is Jesus's prayer to the Father. Sanctify them. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. I'm going to need the word of God to make me more like Christ. Can't do it without it. That's the key. If your Bible's sitting on the shelf getting dusty from Sunday to Sunday or Thursday to Thursday or Thursday to Sunday, that's part of the problem. The problem is you're not looking more like Christ this week if you're not spending time in the Word. Oh, you knew this was coming next. Prayer. Two, two verses later, Jesus says this, and for their sake, he's praying now to the Father, I consecrate myself. There's the word, by the way. He's setting himself apart, not from sin in that regard, because he's not a sinner, but he's setting himself apart for the task, in this case, of interceding as a mediator for us, so that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So what is he doing? He's praying for them. He's praying that they're sanctified in the truth. That prayer, though coming from Christ, which may be a unique pattern, certainly reminds me of the fact that prayer is certainly a part of the process. I need people praying for me, or I need to be praying. Jude, verses 20 and 21. Look at this connection. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So I need to stay on track. I need to keep building myself up. And what's the couplet here? and praying in the Holy Spirit, praying those things that the Holy Spirit would pray, praying with a deference to the Holy Spirit's agenda, praying as I'm building myself up, keeping myself, the means of that in this passage, bottom of verse 20 is prayer. Remember, I always joke about this, but people mock us for saying, hey, you got a problem, you need more Bible, you need more prayer. But you know what? That's what you need. So I don't know how else to communicate that to you. You want a pill, you want a program, you want four steps, you want some kind of new twisted thing that you've never heard before that's so neat and Christian, I need a new book, I need whatever. You need the Bible and you need more prayer. I guarantee you almost every single issue we deal with as pastors, almost every issue, if I just gave you your Bible and I had a prayer closet for you and I said, let's spend more time this week, let's quadruple your time in the Word and quadruple your time in prayer, which for a lot of people wouldn't be a lot of time. But let's just say, let's quadruple it all. I assure you things in most, almost every case would be radically changed because you would be changed. Your life would be changed. You'd be more like Christ. Anyway, I don't mean to oversimplify all the problems that we face, but we're missing that one. And we're missing this one too often. When we hit bumps in the road, we pull away from God's people, which is the worst thing we could possibly do. I got three sub points here, but jot down fellowship as our heading. This may sound redundant, but one of the things I need is for you to pray for me and you need people praying for you. And not just saying it, by the way. That happens a lot on the patio around the donuts and coffee. 
hey, I'll pray for you. We really actually need to do it. Wouldn't hurt to do it on the spot, but certainly to be doing that kind of thing that we see in the Bible all the time. Christians praying for each other for their sanctification. Epaphras is a good example. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Colossians 4, 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, he's a Colossian, a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you. He's always struggling. There's a great word. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. He's really working in his prayer life for them. What for? For their sanctification. That you may have this growing maturation process. You might have this, this advancing trajectory. You might stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Making the right choices. A mature Christian. That's what Epaphras is struggling in his prayers. So the reason you need other Christians in your life, the reason we need to go from chairs face side by side to chairs face to face in small groups, home fellowship groups, sitting around tables like this, talking and getting, that's why we give you so much time to eat. You need time to get to know each other. And one of the things that ought to be happening is a mutual kind of a prayer support. It is essential to our sanctification, praying for each other. Secondly, oh, this is awful. Correcting and directing each other. We need to be willing to. Matter of fact, we need to be obligated and feel the obligation to correct and direct one another. So much in the Bible speaks to this. Hebrews chapter 3. A lot of, by the way, third-person imperative verbs in Hebrews, which is, I command you to make sure something happens in someone else's life. Third-person imperative. Have that happen in their lives. Make sure of that in their their life, that third-person concern or burden. We don't feel a lot of that today because we're very individualistic. But look at this verse, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another. How often? At least twice a year. No, every day. See? And you spend time with Christians, there ought to be some exhorting that goes on. As long as it's called the day, in this case, of course, we're concerned about sin, either keeping us from the grace of God and salvation, or sin keeping us from the grace of sanctification and our growth, that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We ought to be sharpening each other. And you need the body of Christ for that. That's why people that sit around on the stream all the time and think they're going to church because they're watching a stream, people say, well, I don't really go to church, but I I listen to good Christian radio. Mm, Doesn't work. I need people praying for me to complete part of this recipe for my progressive sanctification. And I need the willingness for them to see my life and be able to correct and direct me as needed. Letter C, encouraging each other. This is more that paracleo, that great word we talk about from time to time of coming alongside like a knee brace. And if something's weak, shoring it up helping it out, walking with another and making sure the good happens. Two are better than one. Cord of three strands, not easily broken. That Ecclesiastes passage. And this very familiar verse, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider, that means to think hard about, give some thought to how to stir one another up to love and good, good deeds, love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, and this is the best way to do it, face to face, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That means... That the more we grow in our Christian life, progressing toward the the eschaton, the final arrival of Christ, we ought to be doing this more, not less. Sharing more meals, being together, encouraging each other. All right, there's three means. Prayer, Bible study, fellowship. Does that sound like the thing you learned the first day of your Christian life? That was good stuff you learned the first day of your Christian life. That's good things. You need to do that. Here's something I didn't tell you the first week of your Christian life. One of the best means God has for your sanctification, your progressive, practical sanctification, is when he spanks you with painful, unpleasant discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, which is all about that discipline, he says, for they, our parents, disciplined us. Well, at least they used to. And in our day, they don't discipline much anymore. Permissive parents. Did you see that discussion question I gave you this week on the back of the worksheet? How rude of the pastor to speak of indulgent, permissive parents. But I see them everywhere I go. All right, dramatic pause. We'll move on. Hebrews 12, 10. 
They disciplined us, and that's the expectation. They would think a generation is crazy not to, which is, is today. But parents, I'm just going to get through this verse. Disciplined us for a short time as they seem, as seem best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share in, there's that word, hagios, his holiness, sanctification. We might be more like Christ, less like our old self, more like Jesus. That is going to happen through discipline, which he explains in the rest of this passage is painful situations in response to our sin, which he says, by the way, you're not even saved if you don't see this stuff happening in your life. If you can get away with sin without God's intervention, I'm not talking about the time you sin and you're quick to repent, but the time you sin and you don't quickly repent, if, you, if you're free from, from God's discipline, nothing painful happens in your life. The Bible says you're not saved. That's the passage. You're illegitimate children and not sons because he disciplines every son he receives. And I know there are days you, you feel the pain and discipline of God and that you just need to remember as part of God having you share in his holiness, which means your progressive sanctification. What about this? Really don't like this topic. Painful trials. God says the process of you becoming more like him is not just him responding to when you step off the path, but when you're going down the path and bearing fruit, this is John 15, I think of, what does he do to the branch that bears fruit? He prunes it so that it'll bear even more fruit. That's the painful trial that is supposed to get me to think if my life is hard right now, if I'm financially struggling, relationally struggling, legally struggling, I should sit back as a Christian and know this, nothing's outside the purview of God. God is sovereign over the circumstances of my life. The struggles and pains that I have that are not a result of my sin, but are just there are something I should say, well, this is a good thing then. I mean, it may sound dramatic and hyperbolous to say count it all joy, but that's the idea. I sit back and say, well, it's a good thing. Why? Because you meet those various trials and you know that the testing of your faith, the refining of your faith, that the sterling character that God is trying to produce through that, it's producing steadfastness, endurance. Let steadfastness have its full effect. You got to think about it. You got to incorporate it. You got to work at, at seeing those things produce muscles in your spiritual life that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God wants to use you, and he'll sharpen your life through the painful work of some kind of trial. I tried to add that to my last book on, on suffering that I wrote that some of you have read. Yeah, God's use of pain in our lives for good. That's the means, at least a quick survey of means. I'm sure there's more, but those are the main ones in the Bible. Now, let's spend the balance of our time, which is not a lot, talking about today's attacks on biblical sanctification. You start getting serious about being more like Christ, saying no to sin, being obedient to God, you're going to be called a legalist. Have we dealt with this enough in our church? You are a legalist. 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 Okay, my first very important clarification is for you to recognize people throw that word around as the end of every argument and oftentimes they have no idea what they're saying. What in the world do you mean by that? That's what I want to ask. What do you mean by that? Anytime you're called the legalist, ask them, what do you mean by that? Now, first of all, they can't quote a verse for you because this word, not in your Bibles. Did you know that? The word legalism, legalist, not in the Bible. The closest it comes is in the NIV in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3 when Paul's talking about his own pharisaical path and his resume and he speaks of something the NIV translates legalistic righteousness. ESV doesn't even translate it that way, but he's talking about establishing his own righteousness. And in that regard, I suppose we can talk about a, a legitimate concern. If, if you mean by that non-biblical, extra-biblical word, I'm not saying it's unbiblical, I'm just saying it's not in the Bible. If you're talking about justification, as Paul did in Philippians 3, not being earned, well, then I'm with you on that. If you're saying you're a legalist and you mean, hey, Pastor Mike, what you're doing is having people earn their salvation like the cult groups, then you know what? You'd have a good accusation if, in fact, that's what I'm doing. 
So you get serious about your spiritual growth. You get serious about sanctification. Someone calls you a legalist. You need to ask the question, I'm, are you mean, you got the impression that I was saying we earn our salvation? That our sanctification is the means of justification? Oh, I didn't mean that at all. And you better clarify, which of course, that's not what they mean. Of course, you don't even need these verses. You know them. Romans chapter three, verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Clearly not the case. Secondly, they could mean this sanctification. You know, you're just throwing stuff out there and it's just man's rules. Got to wear a tie on Sunday. Can't have cards in your house. Can't go to the theater. Can't go to the movies. I say it that way because that's the way it used to be said. Can't go to the theater. Can't go to the movies. Those things they may say, hey, what you're doing is what they did when Jesus showed up and they said, you didn't wash your hands. And you didn't wash your hands, not because the Bible says you got to wash your hands before you eat, but because that was the tradition of the Pharisees. And as Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, people honor me with their lips. Their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Now here's the key phrase, teaching as doctrines. In other words, the teaching of God. They're teaching that the teaching of God is really not the teaching of God, but it's the commandments of men. You've come up with things like you got to wash your hands before you eat. That's not in the Bible. And this wasn't a hygiene issue. This was a ceremonial issue. And it's not a ceremony of God in the Bible. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. Now, if that's what you're saying I just said, well, then you're right. Call me a legalist. If that's what you mean, I might pick a different word for it, but okay. Did you think that I meant some kind of man-made tradition is now the the means of of your sanctification? That would be legitimate. That's not the case. What they usually mean is this. What they usually mean is don't tell me I have to obey God. You may say something about Bible study, going to church. You tell someone to go to church that doesn't go to church and you say, hey, you got to go to church. They're all going to call you a legalist. And you need to say, oh, I didn't mean that you'd earn your salvation by going to church. Well, okay. I didn't think you meant that. Oh, do you think that that's a man-made tradition? No, no, no. I can open up the Bible and show you that you're supposed to be a part of a church, have a pastor, and not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's God's word. Well, I didn't mean that either. I knew it was in the Bible. At least I thought it was. What do you mean? Well, here's what I meant. Don't tell me I have to obey God. That's what they mean by legalism. Is that crystal clear? I've heard it so many times just this week. People talking about legalism. And as soon as the word legalism comes up, it's the trump card. I win. Boop. I win. I, I, I can end any argument with the word legalism in modern day evangelical discussion. But if what you mean is this, then you don't understand anything about what the Bible teaches. Let me just throw out three passages. And again, here's another topic we could spend all night quoting passages on. Paul says this, neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision. Now think about that. Whether your foreskin's cut off or it's not cut off doesn't matter. Whether it was done on the eighth day by a priest, it doesn't matter. What is that? That's the laws of God. That's the ceremonial laws of God. You're right. Clearly, he makes a distinction in his mind. You know what does matter though? Keeping the commandments of God. Well, isn't cutting your foreskin off on the eighth day a commandment of God? Well, that's a ceremonial command. And boy, the early church understood clearly those are not required. That is not what God asked for. It doesn't matter. But you know what does matter? Keeping the commandments of God. What commands are we talking about? The moral commands. The commands that Jesus displayed in his own life. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, doesn't keep his commandments. He's a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, if you want to say, hey, you're a legalist because you're telling me I have to obey God. All I'm telling you is something the Bible tells you. You have to obey God. That's what he asks of you. That's what he requires of you. And don't tell me you love him and you don't keep his commandments. Well, what are you, perfect? No, because again, no one's claiming perfection. But we are talking about you disregarding doing what the Bible says because you just pull a flag out called legalism and throw it. The legalism charge. Make this very clear in your mind. Grace is not opposed to God's rules. It's not grace or God's rules. Oh, isn't there a grace-law distinction? It's law and grace, grace and law, law and grace. They're mutually exclusive. Listen, when it comes to justification, they are mutually exclusive. You are not saved by keeping the law. 
But when it comes to your sanctification, grace is not opposed to that. Matter of fact, grace is going to push you toward keeping the rules of God. Look at this. Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All kinds of people, by the way. Not people, all people without exception, but all people without distinction. And what does it bring when it brings that? It brings a kind of salvation that trains people to renounce ungodliness. How would I know if it's ungodly? Because the law says it. And worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So my life is supposed to be different. Other people sit there and watch football on Sunday morning. I'm supposed to go to church. That's what the Bible teaches. I'm supposed to assemble together and all the more as the day approaches. Now, what teaches me that? God does, but in this passage, grace does. Grace is pushing me in that direction. Grace is not opposed to the rules in any way, shape, or form. The moral law is essential. It's essential. And if you're really a comprehensive theological thinker, I guess I should add this addendum for you. It's essential for now. It's essential for now because I am now in a fallen body, in a fallen world. And if you say, well, what about Ezekiel 36, going to put his spirit in me, move me to keep his commandments? Now, I don't really need a Bible if the spirit's inside of me. I don't need the rules if the spirit's inside of me. And in a perfect world, you're right, you wouldn't. You wouldn't need the rules. Problem is I live in the flesh. And the flesh and its passions are constantly at war at my spirit, with my spirit. And often I don't really know whether my feeling is right or whether my feeling is wrong. I don't know if the feelings and passions I have are overwhelming my spirit and my new heart and I'm now justifying compromise. I, I really need the rules to keep this clear in my mind. Letter A, they, the rules clearly show me the path. Clearly. It'd be like saying, can't I just put this on the spirit autopilot and I can land this plane? I don't need the lights on the runway. Well, the problem is in a fallen plane, you need the lights on the runway because I can't always trust the autopilot because I don't know how it's filtered through all the gauges on the dashboard because this is a fallen, messed up, short-circuited plane. So put the lights on the runway. I need to know the path. A couple of passages on this. Of course, you know this one, Psalm 119, 105, 106. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I need the path lit. Tell me what the rules are. Verse 106, I have sworn an oath and I confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I'm going to do it. I'm going to see them. I'm going to read them. I'm going to do them. Psalm 19, 7 through 9, the law of the Lord is perfect. Why would you disregard this? It revives the soul. Testament of the Lord is short, makes wise the simple. Precepts of the Lord, they're right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens my eyes. You want clarity of of your your, your spiritual sight? See what's right and wrong? Discern? Man, I got to have the commandments of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are pure. They're righteous altogether. People that say, hey, it's about grace, not law, then you're missing what we learned earlier in our series, the third use of the law. As those Lutherans and Calvin, and, uh, Calvin put down in paper, the, the Lutheran Concord, three uses of the law. You, gotta, you need the law for the lighting of the path. Letter B. Well, that you quoted two Old Testament passages, Mike. Maybe you're just not, you don't know there's the right side of the Bible there, the New Testament. I understand that there is a New Testament. And I understand this. When it comes to the New Testament, I've already quoted this passage. Let me quote it again. The moral law is not the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is constantly talked about as being passé. Not interested in the ceremonial law anymore. What I'm interested in is the moral law. Clear distinctions there. It's an authority for my life, the moral law of the Old Testament. Even the moral law that's found in all kinds of weird laws that I'm thinking I don't even understand why I would read that law. I don't have an ox. But it says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, when they're talking about paying their pastors and people are saying, why should we pay people? They're doing God's work, spiritual work. There's no need to pay them. Shouldn't they do this all for free? He says, listen, you need to pay the pastors. Why? Verse 8, because the law says it. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Seems to be. It's found in the Bible about oxen. 
Well, he is concerned about oxen, I suppose, but that's not his ultimate concern. His ultimate concern in giving us commands like that is the fact that we should learn the moral principle. He does, does he not, this is a rhetorical question, which he answers, does he not certainly speak for our sake? In the Old Testament law, he speaks for our sake. If there's moral principles in those law, it is for our sake. And it is written for our sake. Of course it is. And notice the word in verse 8, authority. This is the authority for the church in Corinth in the new covenant age for us to look to the moral law of God. Of course, understand the ceremonial distinctions. And I got to give you this because often people say, what about the ceremonial law? Check this out. Later in that passage, he says this. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And if you think it's, it's a lot like the word baptism and a lot like the word sanctification. If you don't make a distinction and ask yourself the question, what law are we talking about? We talk about moral law or ceremonial law. You'll be confused when you read passages like this. To those that are under the law, I became as one under the law. Oh, you didn't care about the rules until you were around people who cared about the rules. No. He makes clear parenthetically, though not being myself under the law. What law? Ceremonial law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, the moral law, but under the law of Christ. All the moral law that we see embodied in the person of Christ that I'm being conformed to that I can win those outside the law. Now, all those discussions of the law, there's two laws spoken of there. Let me make it clear. What do you mean you were under the law when people that you were among the Jews were under the law? Ceremonial law. Here's the example I want to give you. Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, follower of Christ, and his father who was a Greek. Now, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So he's a Christian. He's got a Christian mother. His dad is a Greek, which means he wasn't circumcised as a kid. Verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Where is he going? Synagogue to synagogue, proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He took him and circumcised him. Now that's a ceremonial law. Circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now you're in your hometown. You know your father's a Greek. You know you wouldn't have been circumcised. He's going to get him circumcised so that when he's asked, he can say, of course he's circumcised. We just circumcised him. I don't want that to be a stumbling block to you listening to me speak of Christ, which is exactly what's going on in 1 Corinthians 9. Ceremonial law. Is he ever outside of the moral law? Never. Why? Because it shows us the path of holiness, and that's the goal for every Christian, for us to be like Christ. So understand that ceremonial distinction. Wow, time's flying. We're going to fly too. Moralism. If you've read anything in the last 10 years on sanctification, you've heard this word tossed around, moralism, the charge of moralism. I wish I had time to go through all this. I don't. Let me just summarize. 1 Corinthians 10, I understand we see Christ in these pictures of the Old Testament, which he clearly admits in the beginning. But then he says this, if you want me to only look at, at justification truths when I read a passage of scripture, and that's how people are, are advocating today. Don't give me any moral. You know what moral is, by the way. Moralism is a principle of right and wrong. If you want me to look at every passage in the Bible and only find justification truths, and you don't want me to ever highlight moral truths, then you want me to do something that Paul never did. Paul always showed us not only the Christological truths, he also showed us the moral law of God. And this is a great passage. You jotted it down. Go back and read it. The moral behavior of the Old Testament becomes for us an example, an authoritative example for us to follow because we learn something about God's moral law, his moral character, and his holiness. You can jot this one down, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. These words that I want you to highlight there are reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Moralism, as it's often charged against people that take sanctification seriously, if really there was no such thing as teaching moral principles, there would really not be a lot of reproving, rebuking, or exhorting, or I would argue there would be none at all. There would only be evangelism. The charge of in your own strength. 
You hear this all the time, especially it seems in our circles. You're doing it in your strength. You know, all that teaching about the rules, you're going to do it in your own strength. Okay. I don't know what it is to do anything that doesn't include my own strength. I understand that God works in me, but we've already established that this is a synergistic experience. And at the end of the day, I am tired because I worked hard. Even if I worked hard in my giftedness for the Lord, there's going to be expenditure of effort, exertion. Paul, at the end of his life, can say this. He's about to die. By the way, last letter he writes in the canon of Scripture. I fought the good fight. That doesn't sound like he was on an escalator. I finished the race. That's what he talked about there to the Corinthians. I've kept the faith. Hebrews chapter 4. In your struggle against sin... That's the process of sanctification. That means I'm struggling. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. What does that mean? That means you could have worked and struggled even harder. (laughs) You really haven't given it your all. You mean to tell me you expect me to work so hard that it might even cost me the spilling of my blood? Yeah, and I just threw up the uh, word study circle on this one, agonizomai, which translates that word struggle there in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at the words that translate this Greek word in the New Testament. Struggling, striving, athlete, fight, fought, fighting. These are descriptions of the Christian life. So don't tell me about, well, if you put forth any effort, you're not doing it in the Lord's strength. That's that's ridiculous. When you get out of bed in the morning, you're going to do it in the Lord's strength because you can't do it without the Lord, but it's going to feel like your strength, isn't it? We can talk more about that another time because we're out of time. How about this one? Read entire books on this topic these days. Hey, why would you work at sanctification? You've already got an A plus in heaven. It's the, but you've already got an A plus charge. This is an attack on biblical sanctification. Why would you want to go from one level of glory to the next? Don't you know that all God sees is the perfection of Christ in you? You can't get any better in God's eyes than than you already are. Remember a few things. One, you wouldn't have to remember long because we taught on this on the weekend. The Bema Seat Judgment. I'm going to have to stand before God. He's going to evaluate my life. He's not cranking out on the Xerox machine, on the mimeograph machine to go way back. The mimeograph machine, he's not saying, hey, everybody gets A+. Everyone does not get an A+. Do you get fully accepted in Christ? Yes. Any condemnation? No. Does everyone get straight A's? Of course not. We stand before God one day and we're judged according to our deeds. This should remind us of the doctrine of rewards. Does everyone get the same rewards? No. There's no government issue houses in the kingdom. There's no track homes there. God is passing out rewards in varying degrees based on what people have done. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 14 and 15. We referenced that this weekend as well. People will suffer loss on that day. Number three, remember the assessments of Revelation 2 and 3. When I read books about sanctification being, don't you know we all get A's in heaven? I see it on Twitter. I see it on Facebook. People tell me, listen, you, God is, you couldn't please God any more than you please him right now just because you're a Christian. That's hogwash. It's all over the Bible. And all I, had, I always want to throw up a hand and say, can you just read Revelation chapter 2 and 3? Just read that twice. Just read those two chapters twice through. Now tell me everyone gets a straight A from God. Some of the things in there are frightening. Revelation chapter 2 verse 16, repent therefore, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Yeah, and there's a bunch there. How about this one? This was uh, Tulian's great line. You need to be okay with not being okay. Let's just be okay with not being okay. Wow. Really? Even just the principle in Scripture of the doctrine of God's discipline makes me not be okay with not being okay. Did you follow that? Why? Because Hebrews chapter 12 says, I should not forget the exhortation that's given to me as sons, and that is, I shouldn't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not think lightly of the fact that the Lord is going to discipline you for your lack of sanctification and your rebellion against Him. I'm not okay with not being okay. Well, it sounds like pressure, a little too much trouble. I know you don't like that. People don't like that these days. I don't mean you. I mean corporate Christianity. I hope you've come to live with it. And don't minimize ever God's calls to holiness. Did you get time to write that down? Don't minimize God's calls to holiness. And you want one passage to study on this? 
Write this one down and go home and just read it twice before you go to bed. First Thess 4, verses 1 through 8. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. He puts this in terms of pleasing God, the ability to please Him more and more. He talks about solemnly warning them repeatedly in the past about not disregarding their call to holiness. And people are doing this all the time. Letter F. The just bask in the fountain of grace charge. That's all you got to do, man. Rest, relax, chillax, chill out. You know, I'm tired of that language because I don't know, I don't have any clue what you mean by that. What in the world are you talking about? Well, you know, man, frolic in the grace of Christ. I don't know what that means. I don't know how to do that. Show me what that is. Are you going to do some interpretive dance for me? I don't even know what you're talking about. Bask and frolic and rest in the, in the, in the fountain of grace. What I want to do is demand clarity. Whatever you're telling me to do in my sanctification, just be clear. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Now, I know evangelism is in view, but he did a lot more than evangelism. And the mystery of Christ is going to include a lot of things. And even if not, the paradigm of evangelism is clear here. It is a, there's some mystery to that. And yet, he says, I'm, I'm in prison because that I want to make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Even the mystery of Christ, make it clear. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. I love this verse. I quoted it recently from the pulpit. We don't practice cunning, tamper with the word of God, but by an open statement of the truth. That's the Greek word for just, I want to make it super clear. It's I want to pull back the curtain and show it to you with clarity. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Or even this one. I know it's an illustration in 1 Corinthians 14, but even if a lifeless instrument such as a flute or a harp does not give a distinct note, how is anyone to know it's played? You know one thing? I think you should demand of every Christian book you read, every preacher you hear, what do you mean by that? Enough with these poetic, sentimentalized statements. Give me clarity. The Bible's very up on that. And all this basking and resting and frolicking, I don't understand it. And then it becomes Gnostic, doesn't it? Only the initiates really know what it means. I've had them roll their eyes at me. Oh, if you don't know what it means, I just wonder if you even know the grace of God. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. God, so much information, but I pray some of it would be just what we need in this particular point in our sanctification. Strengthen us, fortify our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.